as a joint venture, or it's done as a development management agreement. There are a number of different ways it might be styled. The most successful ones that I've seen are arrangements where the developer is not intending to hold any of the units afterwards because a whole different scenario comes in if the developer intends to hold. The unit trust is used typically where the principal of the developer wants to get tax deduction for interest on monies borrowed to capitalise the unit trust and then offset that against other activities that the developer or the developer's treasury entity might be doing. If you've got a foreign person that's a developer, for example, that is more likely to lead the developer to being a capital contributor rather than a landowner. You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to episode 304 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Let's say your client wants to develop 10 apartments. They have plenty of building experience, but this is their first development alone. So they ask you how to structure it. And so how should they? Should they buy the land or leave the title in the original owner's hands? Should they use a company, joint venture or unit trust? Should they sell off the plan or later? And what about stamp duty, land tax, GST and CGT? There are a lot of options and moving parts to consider. So to make it easier, let's use an example. Let's say you are the developer. You are GST registered and you want to build 10 apartments over the next three years. The land costs 12 million and building costs are 8 million. So all up, it will cost you 20 million to develop those 10 apartments. You plan to sell them for 4 million each, so 40 million. So all up, you make a profit of 20 million because total sales of 40 million less 20 million for land and development cost is 20 million. And I know this is very visual thinking, but let's just work with these nice even numbers. So the first structure you could use is that you just buy the land. You have those apartments built either by your own building company or a third-party builder, and then you sell those 10 apartments to 10 retail investors or home buyers. This structure has two disadvantages. Number one, you pay stamp duty on the land when you buy it, and then the investors or home buyers buying the apartments pay stamp duty again. So you basically have two lots of stamp duty during this whole development process. And then number two, you also pay land tax during the years of construction since you own the land during that time. So I expected Jeff Steen of Brownwright Steen Lawyers in Sydney to wipe this off the table in one sweep, but he didn't. Here's what he said. Two issues with this approach. One is that you pay double stamp duty because you pay stamp duty when the developer buys the land and then you pay stamp duty again when the 10 purchasers buy the apartments. And then the other negative outcome of this, I think, is that the developer pays land tax on the land during the construction period. Yeah, that's right. But on the other hand, for investors they don't have the commercial risk that goes with having title to the land. Why is it a commercial risk to have title to the land? Because what's your alternative going to be is that the investors go on title. Yes. And why is that a risk for the investors? Inevitably, there's finance that is attached to the 
to the project. If for some reason the developer can't complete the project or has a fight with the, the builders, the investors are, are at risk. And the question is, is the investor investing up front or is the investor investing simply to buy the unit at the end? If they just buy the unit at the end, then of course their commercial risk is very low because they only buy, of course, if the unit exists. Exactly. They're buying the finished product and they don't carry any of the development risk. So that means the additional stamp duty and the additional land tax that comes up in this scenario is offset by the higher price the developer can probably charge. Correct, because they're building a completed product. Is this a common scenario where you basically just have it very clean, the developer buys the land, builds, develops, and then sells the completed project? It is by far and away the most common scenario. And for the developer, it suits the developer. When you're talking about commercial issues as opposed to tax issues, on the commercial side, the developer is able to do the development without interference from all these other investors that might be on title. They're able to deal with the bank. They will typically try and get pre-sales done as a condition of, of having the bank finance go through. And the investors know that they're getting a finished product and they haven't had to give guarantees to the developer's bank in order to complete the project. The pre-sales you just mentioned that are a condition to get bank finance, are they off the plan sales or pre-sales is just a conditional purchase contract? If you finish the unit, then I will buy it at this price. It's the same thing, what you've just said, Heidi. Oh, okay. There are two ways of saying exactly the same thing. I'm wondering, is pre-sale something different to an off-the-plan? Pre-sale means committed. So pre-sale means off-the-plan? Yeah. Okay, good. That leads to scenario two. So with scenario one, I'm surprised because I assumed that you would say, no, we hardly ever see scenario one because of the uh, stamp duty and land tax issues. So it's good to know that scenario one is by far the most common one. But I can actually imagine that reality, the most common scenarios are a mixture of scenario one and scenario two. And scenario two is basically just the same as before, but now the apartments are sold through off-the-plan sales. And yeah, no, it's exactly the same. I think if you come back, Heidi, what you'll find is it's less the case that you have these issues where you've got the developer who's identified the land and more where you get a joint venture where the developer finds someone that owns the land that wants to participate in the development in some way. Okay. That's when you get all these different types of interesting combinations because it's then in the developer's interest to see where the developer can save on stamp duty in terms of making sales. Yes. I just would like to ask you something else about off-the-plan sales. And that is, I think with off-the-plan sales, you a stamp duty actually is due within 15 months and not within three months. Effectively, right? yes, at the moment. So that's one advantage of off-the-plan sales, that you don't have to pay the stamp duty straight away, but you have 15 months. And I think the other advantage of off-the-plan sales is that you only pay stamp duty on the land value and not on the construction cost. Is that right? No. So you're paying, you're paying stamp duty on what you have contracted to have delivered to you. So what's the advantage of off the plan then for the buyer? It's basically just that the stamp duty is due at a later stage, but the value upon which they pay stamp duty, I now learn, is the same. There's no substantial tax advantage. There are often advantages, commercial advantages, because the developer is keen to get the units away at that point in time. And because the buyer is committing at an earlier stage, 
there's usually a discount that is available at off the plan stage that is not available at finished product stage. But having said that, everything is market. You know, it's what's the market going to dictate in terms of the, the price and the demand for product. I mean, I've been involved in developments where they've started, said, we're going to release this off the plan on, you know, let's say at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning. And by 9.05 on the Saturday morning, the queue out the door for the display suite unit is 300 metres long with people who are interested in, in reserving their spot. And then I've been involved in others where they completely struggle to sell off the plan. It's, you know, it's how they, how they market it, how they sell it. And they're the, the, they're the factors that will influence buyer demand or investor demand for off the plan units. It's, it's very, very rarely is there a tax issue for investors. The, the investor market is not, you know, they're, they're looking at side things. Where might they be able to save? Sometimes instead of doing an off-the-plan purchase, they might try and uh, put and call option and try and defer the stamp duty that way. There's a little bit of a, a trap in put and call options, which is not well appreciated, which is that for stamp duty purposes, the commissioner assesses duty at the time the contract is entered into on the basis of the greater of value of the property being conveyed or the amount agreed to be paid. And when you've got a put and call option, the time of the, op of the contract is the time the option is exercised, not when the option is entered into. So with a put and call option, you're locking in the value at the time you enter into the option, but the for stamp duty purposes, the value won't be known until you exercise the option. Whereas an off-the-plan purchase, for stamp duty purposes, you've also locked it in. Mm -hmm. And in a rising market, that's really important. In a volatile market, you know, you pay your money and you take your chances. So one advantage of put-call options is that you basically lock the you lock the value in for stamp duty purchases. So if the value goes up, you still only pay stamp duty on the lower value. Well, it's not on the lower value. Yeah, in the original value, that's if it's an off-the-plan purchase. Whereas if it's a put-and-call option you only get work out what the value is at the time you exercise the option. So if you do a put call option, you actually don't lock in the value. It is whatever the value is at the time of exercise of the option. For stamp duty, correct. I see. Okay, good. Let me just ask you one more thing about off-the-plan sales. Does off-the-plan sale mean that now the uh, developer no longer has to pay land tax on the um, land since everything got sold through off-the-plan? No. <laughs> There will still be land tax, but what will happen is that you've got co-owners. So I should say this on scenario one. So if, if you've got investors and you've got co-owners, then on scenario one, then all the co-owners will be liable for land tax according to their own individual positions. In scenario two, which is developer owns but is selling off the plan, the developer still owns until the sales are completed. So there's no land tax saving for the developer on the way through. So the developer still pays land tax all the way through until the units are finished and are sold. Correct. Scenario three, have you ever seen this? Is this common that the original owner subdivides and then does the off-the-plan sales and so the developer basically just develops? You have the ownership of the land going directly to the ultimate owners. Do you ever have that to reduce? Yeah, absolutely. So this is the next most common. Right. So what, what's typical here is let's say you've got mum and dad and mum and dad have this beautiful 2,000 square metre block and developer comes along and says, I've been eyeing this 2,000 square metre block 
for some time. I can do a really good developer on, development on this and um, I'm going to build 12 units, say, and you can keep four units and I'll sell the other eight. And so one of the means of saving stamp duty is we say, well, we'll keep this in mum and dad's name and I will develop it. Um, and the fee that I will charge you is equivalent to the sale proceeds of the eight units that I'm identifying which are mine. So that no stamp duty in that situation, mum and dad still own the land so that the mum and dad and the developer may, may come to some arrangement for how that is the land tax is born. But mum and dad typically in that situation may still get a little bit of a holiday on that because of the changeover in the changeover rules in terms of changing to a new main residence. But you know, otherwise just assume that they've got a liability but it'll be at mum and dad's rates. You know, there are some GST and income tax, capital gains tax issues that need to be brought into account, but that's by far and away the, the next most common way of these things are done. You save stamp duty because you only have one sale of land and not two, and land tax will become an issue because, of course, it's no longer their main residence when the main residence is pulled down and units are being built, so it's no longer exempt from land tax, but there might be some adva advantageous timing that it doesn't kick in straight away but with 12 months delay possibly yeah again you've, you've got to look at the time and with each particular deal now you mentioned gst and i wanted to ask you about that if the developer is registered for gst and but it's residential apartments do they ever attract gst who's the owner of the land so you've, you've given several different scenarios as to identify who the owner is so mum and dad own the land to start with And they're not registered for GST. So upon sale of the land, there would be no GST. If the developer buys the land and then develops and then on sells, the sale of the apartments, does that attract GST? Yes. So there'll be new residential premises. So they'll be subject to GST. The developer may be able to use the margin scheme if mum and dad sold it and it was their main residence. So it wasn't sold applying GST. A margin scheme is basically that the developer only pays GST on the difference. Is that correct? Yeah, they're designed to tax the profit for GST purposes. So they're yes. not paying GST on the original land value. So let's say in, in this scenario, the land is 12 million and the construction costs are 8 million. And so the total cost is 20 million and they sell it for 40 million. Then they only pay GST on the profit of 20 million. Effectively, they're actually paying GST on the 28, but they're getting an input credit for those inputs of the eight for which are eligible for credits. The construction costs are the eight million. Yeah, so the construction costs are eight million. If you assume that the whole of those construction costs are a taxable supply, then the developer will get an input credit for the eight, but the margin will be for GST purposes, the margin is actually the only the land value gets calculated for the margin because the developer's getting a credit already for the construction costs. If you started with the developer getting taxing the the getting the, the land plus the construction cost as the base for the margin, then the developer's double dipping because effectively the, the developer's getting an uplift for the construction cost, but also getting a input credit for the construction cost. In this scenario, what GST would they pay? They sell it for 40 million, they have construction cost of 8 million and they pay 12 million for the land. They will pay GST on 1 11th of 28 and then they will get also a credit for 1 11th of the 8. 
So the developer pays GST on the sale of the apartments, possibly going through the margin scheme. So that was in scenario one and scenario two. And in scenario three, where mum and dad sell the land, there is no GST. Then, then the developer would just charge GST to mum and dad on the construction cost. But then the sale of the apartments would not be subject to GST. Is that right? Since mum and dad are not registered for GST? So when there's a sale to the developer, there's no GST if mum and dad are not registered or required to be registered for GST. Yes, but mum and dad, in scenario three, mum and dad don't sell to... Yeah, how does this work? In scenario three, where the mum and dad own the property and the developer constructs the units... Exactly. And then the units, yeah, so mum and dad will have to register for GST. Oh, they have, because they basically become... Because they're carrying on enterprise at that point in time, yeah. So that means mum and dad then have to charge GST upon sale of the apartments and probably can go through the margin scheme. Yes. Yeah. Now, scenario four, put and call option. Can you run me through again why you would do a put or call option? Is it to secure the rights of the original or is it to secure the rights of the developer to make sure they have some security over the land? When would you use a put or call option? So put and call option is usually used to, let's say it's used either at developer level or at end purchaser level. So where the developer is trying to secure a site, the developer is interested in securing the site, but knowing that the um, the landowner says, I'm not going to allow you to have exclusive access to this site unless I can force you to buy it as well. The developer typically wants to secure the site similar to a call option, but without paying the high fee that a call option would involve. Might have some fee, but not as high as the call option and may have a longer term attaching to it. And it means that they can start some of, typically started their development application or their approval process without having the huge capital outlay immediately invested in the uh, in the 10% deposit that might otherwise be payable and they can defer the stamp duty. And, and, and if it's done sensibly, they can also have some flexibility in terms of nominating another buyer when they're ready to exercise. Yes. So that was the first scenario of a put or call option, but you said there are two different scenarios where you use put or call options. Yeah, so the second scenario is, is where you've got a investor and the investor is, is saying, I want to put in call option. And, and for an investor, it's really about deferral. It's deferring the time when they've got to, uh, again, pay stamp duty is typically it. And for, for a, a vendor, it also defers the derivation of the sale date, which can be handy as well, because then they can straddle a different tax period. And then scenario five is where the original owner and the developer form a joint venture. You already touched on this before. Again, here, it's, it's the sales to the investors, as you call it, is of the end product. So the investors coming in on title right from the beginning. But in this scenario, the investors are simply taking at the end, they're buying off the plan. And all that's happening is that mum and dad are the sellers off the plan instead of the developer buying from mum and dad and the developer on selling. So how does this joint venture agreement usually look like? Mum and dad maintain ownership of the land, but then they have development is done as part of a joint venture? Yeah, it's done as, as a joint venture. It's done as a development management agreement. There are a number of different ways it might be styled, but the essence of it is, yeah, it, the most successful ones that I've seen are arrangements where 
the developer is not intending to hold any of the units afterwards because a whole different scenario comes in if the developer intends to hold. So the developer is earmarking those units which the developer is able to sell and mum and dad are saying, I'm keeping the rest. I might use one of them for my main residence, but I'm keeping the rest for investment. And if you just imagine there's, again, let's say there's 12 units that are built, mum and dad are keeping four, and the developer's going to get the sales proceeds from eight. All right. And so what you've got at the end is you've got the developer saying, I've got a fee that the mum and dad are paying me, which is an amount equivalent to the sales proceeds of the eight units that I'm selling. And I simply direct or mum and dad give me a power of attorney on their behalf to sell to purchases that I nominate. It's a completely different scenario whether the developer intends to hold units at the end or not. Why does it matter so much whether the developer wants to hold units or not? It's probably then that different scenarios are more advantageous to the developer than if he wants to sell them all, correct? Yeah, so when the developer wants to hold afterwards, then the developer wants to get on title, okay? And then you've got a scenario which says, when, at what point in time does the developer get on title and when does the developer pay the stamp duty? And all those, those things come into play. You have issues around partition at the end. You have issues around GST at the end. You have issues around capital gains tax on the partition. So there's a lot of difficulties that you need to overcome in order to have a successful joint venture where both sides are looking to hold the completed product. Scenario six, where you now bring a unit trust in. Have you seen that a lot, that unit trusts are used in the development of land and then basically the unit trust either buys the land or develops the land? Yes. Yes. The unit trust is quite a common vehicle to do developments, but it doesn't necessarily follow that it needs to be a unit trust. So, so the unit trust is used typically where the principle of the developer wants to get tax deduction for interest on monies borrowed to capitalise the unit trust and then offset that against other activities that the developer or the developer's treasury entity might be doing. Scenario seven, how does all this change if the developer or the investors, I think especially the investors, but either developer or investor are foreign persons? Well, foreign persons, the issues you've got to get around are firstly, um, have we satisfied foreign investment review board criteria so we're permitted to make the investment? Secondly, we're going to have a stamp duty issue on the uh, foreign person acquiring interest in land. And thirdly, we've got a land tax issue on the foreign person acquiring interest in land. So yeah. higher rate of land tax, higher rate of stamp duty and question if we can make the acquisition in the first place. Yes, but apart from higher stamp duty and higher land tax rates, The, the other options are basically still the same, you know, whether you structure it this way or that, that way. Or yeah, if you've got a foreign person that's a developer, for example, that is more likely to lead the developer to being a capital contributor rather than a landowner. So who, whoever is a foreign person is more likely to be a capital contributor rather than a landowner. Yep. Okay. Scenario eight. How does this change if the um, ground floor is a commercial retail space? I can imagine it especially changes with respect to GST or does it also have other implications? GST is obviously the critical thing because you're dealing with a GST taxable supply all the way through, even if you keep it. Whereas when it's residential units, if you're planning to keep them, you can't get a 
you shouldn't get a credit for the um, proportion of the costs that are taxable supplies or creditable acquisitions, to use the language, if the purpose for which you're holding them is long-term rental because you're not intending to make a taxable supply. I can only claim a GST input credit on residential apartments if I intend to sell them. If I intend to keep them, then I don't get an input tax credit because I'm not intending to make a taxable supply. Loosely, yeah. And, and at the moment, five years is the test. As you probably know, the, the new residential premises uh, become old after five years after occupation certificate with you know the usual wrinkles that go with any of these rules. Yes. So if I hold residential apartments after development for more than five years, I'm disqualified from an input tax credit. If I sell it within five years, I still qualify for an input tax credit. Yes. And, and again, what often people do is say, they'll, they'll do one of two things. They'll say, I want to have it on the long term because I want to show that it's a capital asset that I'm holding and I want to get discount capital gains for it. The alternative is I want to get the credit on the way through for cash flow purposes. And if I end up holding it for more than five years, then I'll pay GST, refund the credits that I've claimed as an adjustment event at year five. And then I might forget to make that adjustment event. Yeah. And again, it depends on the individual as to which position they want to take and, and why they might want to say it's on revenue account or why they might want to be asserting it's on capital account. Okay, good. And all these topics, of course, we don't have with commercial retail space because it's just GST all the way through. It doesn't matter how long we hold it or not hold it. It's just GST all the way through. Correct. Although you do get into the situation where you have ability to sell it as a going concern. So in other words, if you have a residential lot and then you have a, uh, it's fully leased at the time you're selling it, then you've got the opportunity to say this is a going concern, so it'll be a supply of the going concern, which is GST-free. So, for example, you could on-sell the commercial retail space, including the shop in it, as a going concern. Correct. Good. And you could also sell an entire block of apartments that are all rented out basically as a business and then hence as a going concern? That's more problematic. There are certainly arguments floating around in terms of what stage an enterprise and will they accept that it's an entire enterprise where you've got a block of flats. I think on balance, my view is that like yours, you've just said that if you've got an entire block of flats and it's subject to a lease, then that lease is, or, or the series of leases should still make the whole of the supplier going concern. But I know the tax office has expressed the view that when it's residential, that it's still the supply of residential premises. And if they're new residential premises, that's primarily what's being supplied rather than an enterprise. If you take it back a bit and say, look, I haven't completed the development yet, it's about to be sold, then, then you've got an enterprise which is the property development enterprise and you could sell everything in connection with that and claim a going concern exemption. There are a couple of different, again, different wrinkles and different loopholes that may be worth exploring. And then scenario nine is... How does this all change if it's townhouses instead of apartments? So it's no longer strata title, but every unit has its own title of land. Anything we just discussed, does anything change? It has the potential to change because you can do a bare trust style arrangement with a partition later because you can identify who actually owns which parcel of land right from the beginning. So if you go back to scenario one where you've got investors on title, 
that does actually open up an opportunity to say these investors have owned specific blocks of land because you're able to identify those blocks of land. Whereas strata title, you're only owning the space in the building. So you just mentioned a bear trust arrangement. So what asset would the bear trust hold and who would be the trustee of this bear trusted arrangement? The essence of it is that because at the time, when you've got a single title, you can't identify off the title who owns what parcel of land. So you're simply saying, Off the plan, let's say there are 10, 10 townhouses that are getting developed, each parcel when it ultimately is registered will be owned by all 10 unit holders. But what we're saying is nine of those unit holders will hold their interest in lot A for the 10th unit holder. And you know, you go to lot B, you know, the second unit holder or second landholder will be the beneficial owner of nine of the 10 and own the 10th outright. And, and so when you're doing the partition, it's easier to explain to the tax office because of the way in which it's been set up that everybody owns their own parcel of land, either directly or through a bare trust. this who holds the cash so for example when investors pay deposits etc who holds the cash is it usually a lawyer with an escrow account or is it the developer how does this work it depends on again the deal which of the scenarios you're doing if it's if it's an off the plan purchase then quite often the real estate agent will hold it if it's a developer arrangement where they're coming in right at the beginning there's usually going to be some arrangement that they'll agree between them and quite often it's the developer that will hold the cash because the developer's using that cash to build the building. Welcome back. I had seven big learnings in this interview with Jeff Steen, so let me just quickly list these for you. Number one, yes, stamp duty becomes due within 15 months and not the usual three months when you do an off-the-plan sale, and that is a plus. But you don't save any stamp duty as such, since stamp duty is calculated on the full price and not just the land value in off-the-plan sales. So the stamp duty is the same. Number two, in off-the-plan sales, the owner of the land still pays land tax during the construction period, meaning you in this case. So the land tax only moves over to the purchasers upon completion and actual sale. Number three, so off-the-plan sales have commercial advantages but don't really offer any tax savings. Number four, residential rent is input tax but the sale of new residential property is subject to GST as a taxable supply. The cutoff is five years. Number five, if the original landowner was not registered for GST, you can use the margin scheme. Number six, joint ventures with the original landowner work best if the developer has no intention of holding apartments or units at the end. Because in a joint venture, the developer doesn't go on title, but to hold the apartments later on, he would need to go onto title. Number seven, foreign investors are better off to just contribute capital rather than going on title to avoid the higher stamp duty and land tax rates for foreign persons. So these were my seven learnings. In the next episode, episode 305, Jeff Steen will talk about the GST-free sale of farmland, also called a going concern sale of farmland. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.